Revelation chapter 2, if you'd like to locate Revelation 2 in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the fourth letter to the seven churches. And this is to the church of Thyatira, although that's not how you pronounce its name. I will tell you in a little bit how we actually should pronounce the name. But uh, for today, we're going to use Thyatira because it's easier for me to say, and it doesn't sound nearly as weird as the actual pronunciation. We're going to read verses 18 to 29 here in a moment. As I've been thinking about this, this letter, I just keep thinking, if I ever wondered if God has a sense of humor, um, he kind of proves it with this letter to the church in Thyatira. And the reason I say that is because of all of the seven churches, Thyatira was the least significant, the least powerful, the smallest church of the seven churches that are written to. Now, one writer referred to them as the least remarkable church, not just in the seven letters, uh, but in the entire area. Um, it has the most obscure history of all the churches that we are going to look at or have looked at. Uh, we, we don't know for sure when it was founded. Um, we know hardly anything about its early culture or uh, influences. Um, and yet God, in the person of the Son of God, Jesus, sends the longest letter to this church, which I just find quite humorous. The one that we would think would have the least to be said to is the one that has the most, and it's longer by far than the rest of the letters. And, as, and that makes it really difficult to interpret. Um, as you read writers about this letter, they'll say it's the most difficult one to interpret and understand because we know the least about the church and the one that we have the most to say about as far as words or read about is the one that we have the least to say about because we don't know that much about it. But um, I am a pastor, so therefore I always have lots to say about everything. And uh, so if you're thinking it'll be short just because there's, it's, it's obscure, you need to get over that really fast because that's not gonna help you this morning and you will be disappointed and you'll go home sad. So just celebrate that, um, that there are actually a lot of things we can learn from this letter. Uh, there is enough information about the city, their culture, especially at the time of the early church, and there's enough information about a, an infamous woman from the Old Testament that's going to be mentioned in this letter that I think it's possible for us to piece together what's going on in this church, what they're dealing with and what the problem is. And I think uh, it should be unsurprising for us to find out that what they're dealing with in this church is something that is become, has become very prevalent in the churches today. So what we'll do is read verses 18 to 29 together, and then we'll begin to unpack this letter and, uh, and trust that the Holy Spirit will teach us from this letter. So beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, 
your love and faith and servants, service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is an interesting letter if you just try to enter into the emotion of it. Jesus is ticked off. He is angry. And, and this, this whole idea that God is the bad guy in the Bible who gets mad at everybody and Jesus is Mr. Love who is always happy with, each other, with everybody is completely overturned in this one passage if that's all we need. In, in science, there's the, the idea that you create a hypothesis and um, all it takes to overturn that hypothesis is one fact that proves it to be wrong. And if Jesus is seen as only loving and nice and encouraging, this one passage overthrows that. His tone, his blazing eyes, his promise of judgment makes it clear that he is very unhappy what's happening in this church. As I mentioned, the name of this city is often called Thyatira, but the actual pronunciation of its name is Thuatera. So that's why we're going to call it Thyatira from today instead of Thuatera, because I'll, I'll just keep forgetting how to say it. I practiced it and practiced, and it comes out different ways. And because it's unfamiliar, I think every time I say it the other way, I'm going to lose your attention in the name, and you'll miss stuff going, well, that is a weird name, or wow, he actually got it that time. You'll be waiting for me to get it right. So we're just going to call it Thyatira. As I mentioned a moment ago, its history is obscure. We really don't know when it was founded or who founded it. The only consensus is that there is no consensus to its origins. There's a lot of theories put out there, but nobody really knows for sure. We do know that it's located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. 
So we had been going from Ephesus north up to Pergamum, and now we're traveling southeast down about 40 miles, which in their day was quite a journey to go 40 miles. To us today, it's relatively easy. But it's southeast of Pergamum, and it's well inland from the Aegean Ocean. And it's located on an open plain. Unlike the three previous cities which were elevated and the last city, Pergamum, which sat up above a thousand feet above, above the rest of the landscape, Thyatira's location in an open plain, kind of in a little veil, not a real valley even, it was pretty much just some hills, some low hills that then came down into this open plain. Its location made it very difficult to defend and thus repeatedly got smashed over the centuries as regional powers rose and power ebbed and flowed with different leaders. So every time a new leader would rise to power, they'd march through, they'd smash Thyatira, and they'd move on. Where Pergamum defended itself and was strong and had a very strong military, Thyatira did not. It was just the opposite. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that Jesus says to this, these church people, if you hold fast to what you have, I will give you a rod of iron to rule the nations. You're gonna share in my authority and you'll be powerful. But at this point, this was a seemingly powerless church in a powerless city. But while their location and those events of being conquered over and over again by other powers, made it very difficult for them to kind of, they weren't the phoenix that rose out of the ashes. They just kind of got smashed, as I said, over and over again. But what happened there was as these different countries or these different ethnic groups would move through and destroy their city, they'd leave people behind to, to rule the city. And so over the centuries, what happened in Thyatira is it became a very diverse population, a very multicultural population. All of the different religions came to be observed within Thyatira. It wasn't just Roman gods or Greek gods or uh, Phoenician gods or whatever. It was all these different melding together of different religions and different practices. They did worship certain gods there, but it wasn't a, a strong center for any one god. It was, again, a melting pot of cultures and a melting pot of religions. And interestingly, over time, while its location contributed to it being powerless, so to speak, and suffering the abuse of these different nations, it's, they were located along a very um, calm river down in this little dale, if you will, vale and dale, I don't know what the difference is, but it's just whatever. They're at this nice little location, it led to them being perfect for trade to come in and flow through the city. Coming down the river with the roads that came in, they became a hub of trade, and thus it led to them being a very strong manufacturing center. By the time of this letter that came to them, they had begun to grow 
They had begun to be very strong in manufacturing, and actually, as time went on, as they moved into the second and third century, they became one of the most influential cities of the region because of their manufacturing center, uh, abilities and the trade that was coming through there. But at the time of the latter, though, they were just starting to get going. Thyatira manufactured all kinds of different products, shoes, pottery, clothing, bronze, brass. For a long time, there was a discussion of whether or not Thyatira ever produced brass. And you'll notice when Jesus comes, his feet are bronze or brass looking. And there's a lot of discussion as to is that connected to the city. And everybody said no, because brass wasn't really there yet. You had to have zinc in order to make the brass with, with the copper. And uh, over time, archaeology revealed that there were actually real zinc mines in the region of Thyatira, and they were, that uh, archaeology revealed over time that they actually produced some of the finest weapons and, and um, armor uh, in the area made out of brass because they had learned how to mine and process um, zinc. But the most important product that came out of Thyatira was a dye, and products were colored with this dye. It is often referred to in the Bible as that, that dye as purple, but it was actually a very brilliant scarlet and was very expensive because it was very difficult to produce. And actually that dye, uh, when you see Persian rugs with the, with the really bright reds uh, that from the old Persian rugs, that was dye from Thyatira that they would produce in those clothes, in those rugs, in all kinds of different fabrics. Uh, from a Bible perspective, Thyatira's most famous city is citizen. Does anybody know who she was? Giving you a clue there. Dyes and a woman, you know who she was? She was a woman that Paul met in a city named Philippi. She was holding a Bible study. She was a fearer of God. She was not a Christian, but she was teaching other women about the God of the Old Testament. And her name was Lydia, and her occupation was a seller of purple. And actually this dye, she would sell products uh, uh, that were dyed with the dye from Thyatira. That was the most prominent, lucrative, important trade in the city of Thyatira. If you were somebody who could produce the dye or you produced products using the dye, uh, that typically meant to put you in a place of prominence and a place of wealth, and uh, that trade was the most important one in the city. Now, I bring that up in the trade sense because there was something very important about being a person who was in the trades in those days. Today, we think of trade people, tradesmen, as carpenters, electricians, uh, plumbers. Those are probably the three biggest categories of tradesmen. But in those days, their electricians were pretty poor, and their plumbers weren't very well off either because they just, people didn't really want that much plumbing in their houses back then. Uh, carpenters were still doing okay. But if you were a tradesman, 
If you were part of the manufacturing process, if you were a uh, sheep herder, if you were a uh, cattle farmer, as we would call them today, which there were those back in those days, if you were a person who planted grain and harvested it and went to sold it, sell it, if you made shoes for somebody, if you were involved in some kind of a trade like that, then you belong to what was called a trade guild. It's a term I've used a couple times, but I haven't really explained it. In Thyatira, trade guilds were stronger and more powerful than any other of the other seven cities. And actually in the entire region, uh, the trade guilds were much more powerful in Thyatira than they were anywhere else. A trade guild, uh, when we hear that term, especially if you've played Dungeons and Dragons or other games that involve uh, middle, medieval uh, characters, you'll hear about trade guilds. You think of them as something from the Dark Ages uh, and associations of craftsmen or merchants who banded together for mutual aid, for protection, for advancement, for, um, for preservation of certain skills, um, or to uh, uh, just somehow protect their professional interests. But in the time of the early church, these guilds were something very different from that. The trade guilds were not only there for business, but all of the trade guilds were in some way religiously connected, and each of the guilds had a patron god or goddess. So let's say that you were a beekeeper in Thyatira. If you were a beekeeper, you had to belong to the trade guild to be that, that was made up of all the people who worked with beekeeping, production, honey production, all of that. However you were involved in that, you had to be a member of that trade guild. If you were not a member of that trade guild, you could not sell your product anywhere. You could raise your bees all you wanted, you could eat your honey all you wanted, but you could not make any money off of it. If you were a carpenter, you could carve wood all you wanted to. You could build things out of wood. If you were a stonemason, you could do that to your heart's desire, but you could not sell. You could not make money. And it wasn't a government thing, it was the local trade guilds themselves that would prevent you from any form of uh, uh, employment if you were not a member in good standing of their guild. And consider that most of the jobs at the time of the writing of this letter were jobs that were some kind of skill, some kind of trade skill, some kind of trade skill. So you say, well, yeah, so you're part of that guild and you pay your dues and all that. Well, once a year, you had to attend a feast for your patron god or goddess, at least once a year. It could happen more often, but at least once a year. For example, if you were a beekeeper, the goddess Malona was your patron deity. If you were a person who produced keys, or you worked with doors, or you had warehouses, your patron god was Portunus. And each year, you were expected, as a member of the guild, to attend a celebration in honor of your patron god or goddess at their temple 
sacrifice meat to their idol, and participate in worship of that deity. You're a Christian. What are you going to do? Because if you're a Christian, you should not be worshiping other idols. And so if you wanted to eat, period, you had a choice to make. You say, well, I would have gotten a U-Haul and I would have moved to Pergamum, where they had trade guilds, just not as strong and as well-developed. Well, I would have moved to Ephesus, where they had trade guilds. You see, you couldn't work in these places, and Thyatira just happens to be the strongest of them. But you could not work unless you worshipped a false god at least once a year. Or, you've been a worshiper of Apollo your whole life who had a temple, a minor temple in Thyatira. Or one of the other gods or goddesses from the pantheon of the Greek gods and goddesses or the Roman gods and goddesses, you were raised. By the way, you had a family deity. Every family had a patron deity. It was just the warp and woof of everyday life in these cultures. But Thyatira for employment was very strong and you're, you bump into one of these Christian people and they start talking to you about Jesus and the gospel and what, it isn't just, you know, to trust Christ was hope of heaven, to trust Christ meant the loss of your job, it meant the loss of your family, it meant the loss of everything. Had an individual in a previous church who got really upset because people in the church were, he was, uh, I won't say his occupation, because the Adams would happen to know him, and I don't want that to happen, that they would know who this was. But this person had an occupation in town, and people in the church were going to other people for the services that he provided. I didn't think anything of that. I didn't know what was going on. But he came to me right before the service on a Sunday morning and chewed me out um, because when the church needed his services, we went with somebody else. And there were reasons why we did that. We thought somebody else was more qualified than he was. But he caught me before the service and in front of everybody in the auditorium was yelling at me because what was the point of being a member of this church if nobody was going to do business with him? So there are, there are individuals who on the flip side thought because they were Christians, I'm sure in that time too, you should do business with them. And they had become part of this church to advance their business. That individual happened to leave the church shortly thereafter because there were other churches where people would value his, his services and he could make some money. But in Thyatira, you didn't have a job if you were a Christian, as it was in the other cities. To refuse worship was to be unemployed. To become a Christian was to embrace poverty 
and experience very strong tempt temptation to idolatry, to go back to what you came out of. So here now in Thyatira, we have another church which was small and poor and seemingly weak and insignificant in their community. And Jesus here reveals himself to them as the one with the blazing eyes. The blazing eyes, probably the fiery eyes, probably refers primarily to his ability to see everything, to know everything, to his eyes penetrate so that he's aware of everything. But I cannot help but believe that secondarily, and I'm not the only one, I cannot help that, to believe that secondarily, when we talk of somebody having fire in their eyes, and it's, it's a similar idea back then, it refers to anger or intensity. He sees it all and he's angry about it. You can see it in his eyes that he's angry. He reveals himself as well as one with polished armored legs and feet, which gives warrior imagery. And as he speaks to this church, he commends his brothers and sisters for their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance and that their latter works exceed the first. There's a lot of really good stuff being said to these people. Your belief is strong. And you're spiritually growing. The idea of your latter works exceed the first is that you're spiritually maturing and you're spiritually growing. And as I've thought about this, as I read just that part, and it seems that way in a lot of these letters, um, you know, with Ephesus, he says all these great things. Ah, uh, oh, but I got something against you. I have a little problem going on there in Ephesus. You left your first love. Pergamum has a little issue going on. And when we come here, we have a little issue going on. Man, but as I read this first part, I just kept thinking from a pastoral perspective, this is a dream church. You know? Their service is amazing. Their, their faith is growing. They're patiently enduring the trials that they're facing. They love God. They love one another. And they're spiritually growing. And on the surface, from first glance, there's so many good things happening. But Jesus says that there's, there's a problem here. And it's a serious problem that they have to address. They are tolerating. They are tolerating. That's an important word. Tolerate. Tolerate does not mean approve. Tolerate does not mean participate. Tolerate means you know something is going on that's wrong in the church, and we're going to keep this to the church. You know something is wrong in the church. There's sin in the church but you're willing to look the other way and let it exist. Not approving, not participating, although we'll find out that some of them are participating, but there's at least a group that is tolerating a so-called prophetess whom Jesus refers to as that woman. The language here even implies an emphasis of that woman. 
Jezebel. They're tolerating her teaching. They are tolerating her influence. And her teaching and her influence, influence was encouraging and seducing. It's an interesting word and the way it's used. That this prophetess who is in their midst, teaching in their midst, is not only encouraging sexual immorality, but she is personally seducing believers in this church to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. We don't have to guess the problem here. Jesus doesn't pussyfoot around it. He doesn't kind of, you know, uh, diminish it by smoothing it over. He just says flat out that she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, the question that I had when I approached this, this letter was, well, how is this different from what was going on in the previous churches where the Nicolaitans were present? Because the <laughs> those people, the Nicolaitans were people who were encouraging license. They were preaching license. They were teaching license and, and were involved in sexual immorality. So how is that different here? And why is Jesus, especially where you got Pergamum and Thyatira, the letters backed up against each other, why does Jesus make a distinction here? And I think that I would suggest to you that the distinction is that the Nicolaitans were encouraging people to go out to the temples and saying, it's okay. It's okay. You can go to the temples. Um, you're Christians. Jesus has forgiven you. And therefore, you can go enjoy these things and you don't have to worry about, you know, that it's wrong. Just go enjoy these things. Enjoy the practice of the worship, enjoy the food, and just have a great time with that. They were encouraging people to go out to these things. But based on the name Jezebel, I would argue that what was going on here was not an encouragement to go outside the church to things, but actually that Jezebel, this woman, had brought this into the church that the sexual immorality was going on inside the church. And the, and the worshiping of idols and meat offered to idols was happening inside the church. Not outside the, wall, the walls. And when we talk church here, talking about the gathering place, not just the people, but it was happening as they gathered which is really hard to imagine. But I think that the name Jezebel is a clue to us. And I think it would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about Jezebel this morning and to understand her, uh, because when we understand Jezebel, who she was and what she did, it, it just plugs right in to this rebuke that Jesus has for the, for the church. 
For most of us, the name Jezebel provokes negative feelings. I don't know, I've never heard of a Christian family name their daughter Jezebel. It's like naming your son Judas. Now, outside of Christian circles, there isn't as much knowledge, and there actually have been women who have the name Jezebel, but, and there are men who have the name Judas, but within Christian circles or Christian influence, you don't name your kid Judas. You might name him Jude, but not Judas. And Jezebel is not a popular Christian women's name either. But what I found interesting when I just did a search, because I was curious, I was curious to know how many women these days are named Jezebel. And there's been a few here and there over the decades that have been named Jezebel. But what I found really curious was that even outside of the church, in the greater culture, the name Jezebel is associated with rebellion and evil. There's been some musical performers, some actresses, different things that have taken that, na that name on themselves as a stage name, but it's all part of the production of an image of somebody who is very strong and rebellious and kind of messes with stuff you shouldn't mess with or lives a lifestyle that's you know not the common lifestyle. So it's not just within the church, but outside the church, there's this recognition of this name, this persona of this person who is rebellious and evil. And if we went back to the first century church, the association would have been even more clear. They knew who Jezebel was in the first century church. There was an important part of their teaching. And what's interesting in Revelation is as Jesus is revealed and as he speaks personally he often makes references to the Old Testament we haven't tuned into them very much but he's often bringing out Old Testament passages and actually the image of Jesus which I did try to bring out as Jesus is revealed and John turns and sees him and talks about what he looks like we can go to Daniel 6 and see almost the exact same thing the person who's revealed in Daniel 6 is the same person who's revealed here. There's all of these allusions to the Old Testament because the early church was being taught from the Old Testament. And if someone tells you that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as a very well-known pastor today has said, what he's telling you is to, that he doesn't really want you to understand the New Testament because you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. If the Old Testament points us to Christ and, and is the beginning of the process of revealing to Christ, then the New Testament it is the opening of our eyes and the connection between all those old prophecies and, and early revelations to who this person is. So these people had been taught the Old Testament. That was most of the Bible that they had for most of the first century. They had scrolls from the Old Testament to learn about Jesus. And so here with this church, when Jesus speaks of Jezebel, the association would have been very clear and the idea with her would have been actually, I think, jarring to these people. It would be similar 
to someone standing up and calling me Judas. There would be all kinds of associations and things going through everybody's minds if somebody stood up and said, he's Judas. So for Jesus to refer to this woman as Jezebel, they would have gotten it real quick. We don't have time to go back to the Old Testament and look at the story. I will tell you that the story of Jezebel begins in 1 Kings 16 and covers 15 chapters thereafter into 2 Kings. And, and I never realized that. As I went back to read and look at the story of Jezebel, I had never realized how much space she occupies in the Old Testament stories of the kings. 15 chapters. That's a huge amount. A lot of the kings get, you know, a few verses. But here's Jezebel married to a king named... Anybody know who she's married to? Ahab. She's married to Ahab. And they get 15 chapters together. Jezebel was not an Israelite. Jezebel was from a northern Israel town named or city named Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two cities together and there were surrounding smaller cities. And um, you, you might remember the story of a woman, uh, a widow from Zarephath that uh, one of the prophets interacted with. That is from Jezebel's hometown area, which I think is very ironic, uh, that, that God is providing through this prophet for this widow from Jezebel's hometown area while the rest of the nation is uh, experiencing famine. Jezebel was a Canaanite princess. King Ahab, who is identified as the most wicked king of the 10 northern tribes, chose her for his first wife. She was a worshiper of a goddess named Ashtoreth. There's a lot of different names for her. Ashtar, Ishtar, Ashtaroth, Asher. There's all kinds of different names for her depending on the culture. Um, and, but she was the primary female goddess of the Canaanites. If you trace Ashtoreth's history back in the Bible, from the very beginning of the people's invasion of the land of Canaan, they began to struggle with the worship of Ashtoreth. She was an extremely immoral primary goddess of Canaan. Her consort was El. He was the primary male god of Canaan. And Ashtoreth had multiple children with El, and one of those children was a son named Baal. So you maybe get a connection there of the Baal worship, but Ashtoreth worship was there before Baal worship was there. As the myth goes, she later became Baal's consort, her son, and overall with him and with El birthed over 70 gods and goddesses in the Canaanite religion. Jezebel had ambitious designs. She married Ahab, rose in power, and ultimately became the true power behind the throne. As we've had presidents over the years, they'll talk about who's pulling his strings. 
Well, with King Ahab, she was always pulling his strings. She encouraged the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth and ultimately personally supported 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth. Prophets really refers to kind of a priestly capacity where they would also do divination into the future. Jezebel systematically eliminated almost all the prophets of God and through Ahab blended the worship of Yahweh and Ashtoreth. Later, Jewish theology changed to teach that she was the original wife of Yahweh and that Yahweh divorced her uh, after creating the world. But in the process of creating the world, Jewish theology taught that while Yahweh created, Ashtoreth gave life to his creation. She became associated with the tree of life. And eternal life was possible through her. Because she was associated with the tree of life and trees, her worship happened in the forest. They would carve trees into particular images that represented her, and where there were multiple idols of hers, they were called groves. If you think of the Old Testament stories where they would go up into the high places and worship, or in the groves, or where, where different people went up and destroyed the groves, those were those places of Ashtoreth worship, out in the forests, under these trees, or they would actually carve trees, they would uproot trees, clean off the roots, carve a head and upper body, and then the trunk would come down and the roots would be there. Some of them would be planted that way, some of them would just sit out in the open that way, but the worship took place around these idols. The, this, this is important to understanding what went on in, I think, Thyatira. The worship of Astra centered on and encouraged gay, lesbian, and bisexual practices. Where other gods and goddesses, there was a lot of heterosexual activity that went on in their worship, very immoral. With Ashtoreth, it focused on gay, lesbian, and bisexual practices. That's what Jezebel brought into the nation. Well, she didn't bring it in. Solomon actually was the one who officially brought it in. His second or third wife was a Sidonite, and that brought that in to the people. Later on, before the northern ten tribes were judged, there were actual Ashtoreth or Asherah poles, these were these carvings with the roots, in the temple or tabernacle in the northern ten tribes, and in the temple of Solomon, there were Ashtoreth poles as well, Asherah poles. It became that synchronized into the worship of the Jews and was really the reason for the final judgment before they went into captivity. Her influence in Israel is probably best stated in 1 Kings 21, where we read about Ahab, that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, 
who Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after their idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So there was no more wicked king than Ahab, and Ahab pursued what he did because he was incited by Jezebel. You may remember a showdown on a mountain between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. That mountain was called Mount Carmel, and there a poor yet powerful in God's strength prophet named Elijah called out Jezebel's religious leaders, told them to set up meat on an altar, and he would do the same thing, and whosoever God brought fire down to consume the meat would be recognized as the one true God. As the story plays out, the prophets of Baal and, and Ashtoreth were out there all day long, hopping around, dancing, calling out to their God. Uh, Elijah mocks them and says, maybe he's sleeping. My favorite one that Elijah said is, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. That's actually what he said to those prophets out there. Maybe he's in the bathroom and you're interrupting him. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe you just kind of need to leave him alone for a little while and see what he does. Uh, ultimately, nothing happens. And then Elijah prays a, prays a very short prayer. Fire comes down, consumes and the people kill the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Ashtra. But Jezebel does not repent. She sees this all take place and is angered and says to Elijah, sends a message to, the, uh, to Elijah, may the, may the gods do to me and more if you are not dead by tomorrow. There's no repentance she still believes in her gods, and she continues to influence the people. Ultimately, God prophesies that she will die and that she will be eaten by dogs, and there's a guy named Jehu, who I think I have a little bit of Jehu in me because he was known for how he drove his chariot, at that there's a watchman on a tower and they said, he says, somebody's coming and they said, who is it? And they said, not sure, but by the way he drives his chariot, I'd say it's Jehu. So I think I have a little bit of Jehu's spirit in me by the way I drive my car and you need to pray for Terry in relation to that because I do not like to go slow and I do not like to brake slowly. But at any rate, Jehu shows up, calls out, is there anybody who's on God's side? If you are, throw her out the window. She gets thrown out the window and eaten up by the dogs. I think it's interesting that she in the story is thrown down and Jesus says, I will throw her down on a, bed, on a sick bed. There's very similar language in this. And what Jesus is speaking to this church is the reality that sin persists in cultures and can infiltrate those who call themselves the people of God. From a woman who was not one of the people of God, who was brought in illegally, if you will, against the law because kings, they were not to marry Canaanites. They, she was brought in to marry the king, which had been established by Solomon as a practice. She came in from the outside and brought false worship to God's people in their place 
of gathering and worship. And here in Thyatira, in this ancient local body of believers, I would argue are several kinds of people influenced by this woman Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Jesus identifies that there are those who know the sin to be wrong, but like the church in Corinth are tolerating it. And I have to wonder if not like the church in Corinth, they are saying love wins. Because the church in Corinth was tolerating a man who was involved in an immoral relationship with his stepmother while his stepmother was still married to his father. And the church, from what Paul says and infers, was saying, we love, and therefore, we're, gonna, we're just going to love these people and let it go. They were tolerating it. Besides the tolerant ones are those who have given in to the seduction and have become participants. There's the tolerant ones. There's the ones who are participants. There's language here where Jesus refers to this group as my servants. I really have a hard time with that. He calls them my servants, and that would seem to indicate that these people might be believers, but at least are doing, at the very least, are just people who are doing good works in Jesus' names and identifying as believers. They're at least serving his name. Keep in mind the behavior and the practices that Jezebel introduced to the Israelites as part of their worship of God and teaching them that God approves. And there are people in this church who have been seduced and are participants. There's a third group that Jesus refers to as her children. These are other participants who are part of this church. They are referenced separately from the previous group, and because one cannot be both God's child and Jezebel's child, I would argue that they must be unbelievers, but they are part of this gathering of God's people. There's also a final group identified as those who have seemingly not tolerated the sin, nor have succumbed to it. They're not participants, they're not tolerating it. And Jesus says something very interesting to this group, hold fast to what you have. If there is a group of true believers in this church, it has to be these people and I would say, obviously, they are a minority group because three out of four people are involved in what's going on. They are the only ones who have something uh, to which they can hold fast. And the question is, as I've thought about this, and the, and the question is, is how do we understand this in our context to say, in our context today? How does this apply to Northbrook? I would say, as I've thought about this, your mind probably went where my mind went. I began to think of the mainline churches out there. 
which have embraced immorality of all kinds as part of the normal part of human life. It's the way you were born. And therefore, God made you this way, and therefore, embrace it and pursue it in a loving, committed relationship. I'm here to say this morning that outside of marriage, sexual activity is sinful, and outside of marriage, there is not a loving, committed relationship. You are redefining those two terms. It's called a lustful, temporary, as long as I enjoy it and I like you relationship, and I'm going to dump you down the road. Those churches are the places where pride banners are displayed and where proclamation of love winds are celebrated as the plan and desire of God. And we sit back and expect the judgment of God to come upon these churches and upon these people and may actually correlate, not may actually, it actually is happening, we correlate their shrinking size as evidence of Jezebel being thrown down. They have moved past tolerance to endorsing. But I, I think, as I've thought about this, I think of us, we're Northbrook Baptist Church. We don't tolerate this. When I came here, and I've said this before, I think I said it a couple weeks ago, as I met with the elders in one of the four interviews, they said to me, we have several issues of homosexuality going on in the church. We've initiated discipline. Do you want us to wrap that up before you come, or do you want to wait until after you come? And I said, it's near enough history then I need to take ownership of this and participate in this process. So let's start over and see if we can get a different outcome. It didn't happen. But I am thankful, I mean, the, the different outcome didn't happen. I am thankful that the leadership of this church and you as a body, the ones of you who were here, supported the process of not tolerating it and dealing with it as a church. I'm very thankful for that. There was no time where I had to sit back and say, will you please? Or I can't believe you're actually tolerant. I mean, it was deal with this. We need to deal with this. We need to deal with it in a biblical way, but we need to deal with it. And I'm thankful for that. But I, at the same time, wonder if some ways of tolerance haven't begun to creep into our thinking. Not as a church. I'm not referring to our practices or our policies as a church. I think we're solid on that front. But instead, I'm thinking of how we individually view and tolerate the immorality around us. And maybe in us. For example, I wonder if while we speak out against the LGBTQ lifestyle and celebrate boycotts of Target and others, we are subtly suggesting to our children that sex outside of marriage is okay by the TV shows we watch, the movies we enjoy, the music we celebrate, or by default, the fact that we never talk to our children about sex. And we expect somebody else to do it. 
Is it possible, I would ask you this question, is it possible that while we are quote unquote loving the sinner, which is good and difficult, we are implicitly tolerating the sin in our children's eyes or our own minds, but never speaking to the sinner about their sin. Is it possible that we are sending a completely unbiblical, ungodly message to our children when we talk to them about birth control and safe sex, but we do not talk to them about the fact that it is sinful to practice that outside of marriage? What is the message we're sending to our kids by what we tolerate? or even enjoy. You say, man, the last couple weeks you've talked about sex on two different Sunday mornings. Is this really necessary? Well, we could have combined two letters into one, but Jesus seemed to think it was necessary with these churches. We are outraged by the LGBTQ community, mostly by the trans community. And yet we see people living together unmarried. It's just normal. And trust me this morning, I'm not seeking to encourage legalism. But I do want us to consider what it means to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. I want us to consider what it means to live as stars in the darkness. And I'm hoping that we can begin to understand those ideas in our choices, in our own worldview, our own behavior, and not just part of some nebulous large movement. You know what, folks? It is easy to boycott Target. It is hard to become friends with a gay so that you can get to the point, ultimately, primarily, so that you can love them as your neighbor but also to be able to develop a relationship to share the gospel. Ephesians 1 tells us that God has chosen us in Christ that we may live holy and blameless. That is his eternal purpose. That is the gospel. And my prayer is that as a church, we may become and live more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will, through the Holy Spirit, teach us we live in a messed up world, but your people have always lived in a messed up world. Adam and Eve, as I think about it, were the only two people who enjoyed a non-messed up world and they messed it up. And Father, you've chosen for us as your people today to live in a sin-saturated culture. And yet, as I think about it, we're not even close to what these early church people experienced. 
But what we deal with is hard. There's temptations in it. But you have called your people to be bold and fearless, not as parts of massive groups, but as individuals living out the Christian ethic in pursuit of Christ-likeness. Help us internally to have hearts that want to be like Jesus and externally to, for that to flow out of us in how we think, how we lead, how we interact. May Christ be seen in us. May your name be glorified. May we do good to others. In your son's name, amen. Let's continue in our